spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 130th annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory. Bullshit, my name is Cody, and I'm joined my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Uh, not doing too bad. Another day in uh, in paradise, I guess one could say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we. I want to start off right in the beginning of the episode with some, some what I would consider uh, important news. Uh, now we get, you know, we get some emails uh, from fans we greatly appreciate, but every once in a while, there's one that just really hits you in the gut. And this week, we got one from a lovely young lady by the name of Casey, who is uh, talking about our Brittany Murphy episode, kind of giving us uh, some more information, which we greatly appreciate. Now, she also brought to our attention that one of our heroes from one of our favorite movies, Sidekicks, uh, Jonathan Brandis, apparently had committed suicide at the age of 27. I didn't even know he was dead. Um, this is very tragic, Phil. How did you, did, I mean, you didn't have any idea either, correct? No, and we even mentioned the 27 Club on that episode, so it's a little strange. Yeah, I had never heard that he had passed away. Yeah, I, so basically from what I was seeing is that he essentially, his career was dwindling, okay? He was in Hearts Ward, the, I think it was a Bruce Willis movie, and he thought that was going to, like, blossom his career again. Well, if I was reading it right, they edited out all his scenes. And then he kind of uh, went a little hard in the booze and ultimately uh, ended up hanging himself. Yeah, I do remember the movie Hearts War, but I don't remember, like, him being in it. So I can see... Like, when you said, mentioned that he was in that movie, I totally didn't remember. But if they edited him out, that would make sense. Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty sad end. I don't, uh, I don't really remember him in anything after, I think, the TV show Sequest. Yeah, they, I, uh, I saw a lot of mentions of him in that show. Yes. Who yeah, did he was, play? If, if you didn't have cable, you probably watched a lot of that show. It wasn't that great. It was uh, <laughs> kind of... Uh, one of those like network television shows, but okay, that's now that's the one that Adult Swim then took and like dubbed over their uh, voices, right? For uh, Sequest twenty twenty three or something. I'm not exactly sure about. I don't think I've ever seen that. But oh, really, it's mostly yeah, mostly a movie or mostly a TV show about a dolphin. So okay, interesting. Yeah, I remember him. Is it a cartoon? No, it was a TV show. Ah, okay. Well, I'm thinking of uh, something completely different. <laughs> <Yeah>. than... <laughs> you definitely are. Uh, but anyway, Phil, we got to talk about the pressing news. The depressing news. Um, the Iowa Hawkeyes have laid an egg, and that egg yeah. stinks. And that egg is going to haunt them probably 
Um, how how are you feeling mentally and emotionally and physically this this week? Yeah, so uh, watching that game, I actually was watching that game. It was the day after I got the vaccine, so I was kind of laid up on my chair on my couch, sick. But yeah, I pretty much went through all five stages of grief. You know, uh, during that game, by the end of that game, I was just laughing hysterically to myself, you know, like an unstable person. Um, (laughs) They yeah, they they went up against Purdue and they shit the bed all the way back up to their neck. Pretty much is just is bad. Um, But yeah, I mean, it. you got to really think about it, too. If it was an NFL team that had one loss, you wouldn't really think about it. But because of how college football is set up, one loss ruins a season for a team that has any aspirations at all yeah so it's kind of it's kind of shitty i mean in the nfl a seven loss team can pick up a wild card spot in the playoffs and win the fucking the whole season win the super bowl but in the uh in college football one loss and you're pretty much out of the playoffs so yeah and uh what really sucks is how basically money talks in college football so Whoever has the most money <laughs> is yeah. the most likely to go undefeated a la Alabama and, and all of that because of the uh, recruiting and shit like that, right? Yeah, well, there's no draft, so there's no way to equalize the teams. So if your team picks up a little bit of momentum and can maintain it, they can have like a 20-year run like Alabama's going through right now. So it's one of those deals where really – like some of these college college programs will put in a shit ton of money and get a lot out of it. I mean, there are some programs that put a shit ton of money in and get nothing out of it. And you know, that's, there's a lot of schools actually that are like that. Yeah. So uh, it, it's yeah. called the Minnesota golden Gophers. <laughs> yeah. They've put quite a bit of money into their program and uh, haven't really, you know, hit a groove yet. So here's what I don't understand. Look, I get it. Um, the University of Minnesota is more probably a stronger academic school than mm. some of them. But God damn, why would they go to Wisconsin and not come to Minnesota? I, that 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 like I don't really get if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, it's all about who gets on TV the most. So, I mean, the national ah. audience isn't going to see the Gophers a lot. They're going to see the Wisconsin Badgers more. In the Big Ten, they're going to see Penn State and Ohio State and Michigan the most. So you want to get yourself on TV, seen by you know all of the all the NFL scouts, all of everybody. You're going to want to go to the biggest schools because they're on the TV the most. And then for conferences, SEC is on TV the most. So you want to go to one of those schools, make it a top school. You know, Alabama, Florida, LSU, those guys. The top tiers. Very true. Um, well, speaking of uh, the Midwest, are you ready to get into this week's episode, Phil? Yeah, let's hit it. All right. This week, I am going to be covering another mysterious event revolving around a boat sinking and the crew of said boat effectively completely vanishing. Now, after hearing that little tidbit of information, one might assume that probably happened or the shipwreck happened in one of the vast oceans located on planet earth but this particular event actually took place on one of the great lakes more specifically lake superior which being from minnesota everyone is very familiar with 
Now, have you been to Lake Superior, Phil? No, I have not. Really? Is, uh, which which one's on the which one is on the coast where like Chicago is? What's that one? Oh, uh, I think that's Lake Michigan. Yeah, I've been on that one. That's that's, that's it. I've it, never I've been to some of the bigger lakes in Minnesota, but never been to the Great Lake. Um, just off the coast of Minnesota. Yeah, the okay, so we're gonna hear about it a lot this episode. Um, Duluth in Minnesota is probably the most popular destination location if you want to go to Lake Superior and you're going to hear about Superior, Wisconsin a lot. How's the best way I can describe this? So you have Duluth, this beautiful tourist town, tons of great stuff, everything you could ask for. There's a dinky little bridge that leads you over to Wisconsin and on the other side of the, it the happens lake, to be Wisconsin. it's called Superior, Wisconsin. And yep. uh, the best thing about that place, because when I visited Duluth, we actually rented a hotel room over in Superior, Wisconsin, because uh, it's roach infested and it's a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. But the bars also do not close. So a uh, piece of advice, stay in Superior, because after the you have a good time in Duluth, you, then you can... Go over there and meander with the locals. Yeah. Well, I mean, I imagine it is Wisconsin, so you don't want to let it out at all that you can read. So, you know, keep your, <laughs> keep your uh, smart comments down to the minimum there once you're up north. You know what's funny, actually, too? Dude, it was late as shit. It had to be like one in the morning, um, mm-hmm. and we, we were wandering around. Like, everything was closed except for the bars there, and we went into this one particular bar, and if I had to define what I would call close to hell, it was this place. The entire walls had uh, Green Bay Packers jerseys signed by the quarterbacks, signed by the players. They had Rodgers. They had Favre. They had Brett or Bart Starr. They had Packers shit everywhere. I, I felt like I was a goddamn double agent in there. <laughs> it was yeah. uh, it, it was scary. Yeah, I can imagine going home to one of those dive bars. Um, I imagine probably still had cigarette tar on the walls back from like the 80s and 90s in there. Oh, yeah. the walls, just like the hideaway back in Cresco. The one good thing they did have was the, I don't remember what the game's called, where you like put sand on the board and then you slide the, the little disc across. Oh, what is that game called? Yeah, no, that that, uh, that game's everywhere out there. Um were you, yeah, you, uh, you have the little, the little things that glide across the sand. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I for, can't think of what it's called right now. It's like but, mini curling. Yeah, basically. It's, uh, it, uh, it's quite fun, actually. Yeah, they have a, they have a few bars out in Cedar Falls, Iowa that had that game. Somebody's probably going to send us an angry email or an angry review telling us what it is and how we're dumbasses, but I can't think of it right now. <laughs> well, uh, I'll thank you in advance for the review, ma'am or <laughs> sir. All right, now, the ship at the core of this week's episode was called the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Construction of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald all began back in 1957 when Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company which was heavily invested in the iron and mineral industry, decided to fund the construction of their very own ship that would sail across uh, the Great Lakes, which they would call the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, this blew me away that an insurance company 
um, is that deeply invested in, you know, natural resources enough and they have enough money to make their own goddamn freighter. That they would build their own ship. Yeah, usually the life insurance company or any type of insurance company would be trying to get a company to build that ship so that they could insure it and get money off of it for a long time. Like, okay, I, I is Northwestern the one Peyton Manning used to sing for? Oh, no, that was nationwide. North- that was nationwide. Nationwide, yeah. I know I've heard of Northwestern uh, Mutual before. I just, I, maybe it's a purely Midwestern company, but I definitely know. I believe know. it is, because I remember hearing about it, but I know I haven't heard about it in a long time. So. yeah. It's just I, I when I heard that that just that was just wild to me. But uh, I'm sure some of these insurance companies have their fingers in everything. Oh yeah, there's there's a shit ton of companies that you wouldn't even realize have just you know interests everywhere, like in things that you wouldn't even think that like why are why is this company uh, kind of like delving into these markets. And usually they use like little subsidiary companies to do these things. Yeah. It's like we were talking about the companies that own uh, like PepsiCo, how they own all of these other little businesses that you wouldn't even think of. And that's just in food, not in all the other stuff that they own. So, uh, yeah, and those little companies they can hide under. But anyway, yeah. uh, for the time period, the Edmund Fitzgerald would go on to be quite the groundbreaking ship. Uh, at least in terms of what it was being used for and what was currently available to be used in the transportation uh, department. Firstly, it was constructed to be the first Laker built to the maximum St. Lawrence Seaway size. Now, I, I didn't understand what this meant at first, but upon digging a little deeper, essentially all that is is... In the Great Lakes, uh, if you're moving from like Lake Superior into Lake Michigan to Lake Erie and mm-hmm. all that, they have channels that are X amount of feet wide. Well, this ship was constructed perfectly to fit through all of the channels, and that's what the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway size is. So it was yeah. just made specifically to get through those channels. Okay, so it could basically go into any of the five Great Lakes. Yeah. It, I have a... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I wonder if... You know how the Los Angeles Lakers used to be the Minnesota Lakers. I wonder if the name Laker... I always thought it meant you like were a lake person. I wonder if it was like a boat for the lakes. A very... A laker. On, honestly, the, it definitely could be. I mean, that that's the first time I've ever really heard of the term Laker. I could, yes. without a doubt, uh, see that being the case. Because... Just calling someone who's a lake activist a laker, I don't know if that's very fitting. Yeah, it's, I mean, like, it's kind of a stupid name. If if it if it means, like, a boat that's meant for, like, you know, the Great Lakes and all that, a laker, that makes way more sense than someone who's just a lake enthusiast, <laughs> so. Now, um, the Edmund Fitzgerald would come in at 729 feet long and it was approximately 75 feet wide, that 729-foot hull of the ship would be the longest ship on the Great Lakes and earn the boat the title of Queen of the Lakes, at least 
until the asshole named S.S. Murray Bay stole the title when it came in at 730 feet long. Had to beat him by one foot. (laughs) Yeah, guaranteed. That's just like one of those, like the dude at the bar. You know, you're talking to a chick and all of a sudden he overhears your conversation and, oh yeah, whatever he's got is just a little bit better. You know, go, <laughs> yeah. his car goes just a little faster. <laughs> yeah. You, know? you ride a motorcycle, he rides them professionally. If you yeah. have a 729 foot long boat, 730. <laughs> well, now you can be like, you're being a real SS Murray Bay right now, asshole. <laughs> yeah. now, now, being that the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was a cargo ship, it was equipped with 21 watertight cargo hatches, which allowed it to have a deadweight capacity of 26,000 tons. Quite a bit there. I don't even know if John Cena could pick that up. Approximately three Green Bay Packer fans <laughs> in uh, in weight there. So, Yeah, I, I don't think they allowed more <laughs> than four of them on the boat. Now, the, in- <laughs> the interior of the sheep- ship was no slouch either. It was fully equipped with J.L. Hudson Company design furnishings, which included deep pile carpeting, tiled bathrooms, drapes over the portholes, and leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge. Wow. Wow. Watch out, guys. This (laughs) is fancy. Now, the ship, uh, this is kind of cool. The crew quarters throughout the whole ship had air conditioning, so mm. for 1957, I imagine that had to be pretty groundbreaking, wouldn't you assume? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, I'm not exactly sure when it was built, but I know that the like the city of Phoenix started blowing up uh, around that time because air conditioning became like a thing that was, you know, put more and more into use. So obviously it was being put into use out here. And the only way they could get people to move out here was basically if they promised, you know, their house would have air conditioning in it. So. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know when air conditioning was officially made or whatever, but uh, can I'm, you go oh, I'm, I was going to say, I'm sure it's one of those things that was invented in the 1800s, but they didn't know how to fully <laughs> like make it usable until like the 40s, they had World to, War II tech. They had to make sure it wasn't just uh, Satan's dark magic or something first, probably. Now, yeah. uh, can you imagine getting on a boat, okay, and you're like, Holy shit, you guys are fancy. You've got drapes over the portholes. Holy hell. Yeah, that being the nicest thing. Well, I mean, especially on those lake boats, you're getting onto a cargo ship. You probably don't expect it to be that nice on the inside. Right. So, right. I mean, you're you're probably expecting a real, like a leaky shithole, you know? Yeah. And all of a sudden they have carpet and they have air conditioning and all these like nice leather chairs and you probably wouldn't even know, you know. You know what? Even... The, well, I mean, modern day barges, right? Um, you look at them, like the the captain's quarters or whatever, literally looks like you would get every disease known to man the second you entered that room. Like, it's so filthy. Oh, yeah. It looks like a disgusting, uh, like, janitor's closet, basically. Yeah. One of those. <laughs> yeah, basically, those those barges are almost just, you know, like a semi going down the road. That's what's just pushing those things down the river pretty much. Right. So Now, after the construction of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was completed, the launching of the boat was filled with many blunders, 
which oddly enough might have foreshadowed the tragic ending to the ship's life. As no surprise, the ship was named after the president of Northwestern Mutual, Mr. Edmund Fitzgerald, but it was actually his wife, Elizabeth Fitzgerald, who had the uh, first problems. It all began when she was trying to christen the ship, okay? Christening the Mm -hmm. ship, long-held tradition, bust a goddamn bottle of champagne over the boat and move on with your life. Well, apparently, uh, Elizabeth was having some trouble and it took her three times to finally (laughs) bust the champagne bottle. Yeah, I can see that. I mean... It's not your direct instinct to break something, like a champagne bottle. In think of how many times you've ever held a champagne bottle and meant to break it, you know? I don't think I ever have. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, maybe she just either wasn't strong enough or didn't hit it in the sweet spot. But I think my problem would be just, you know, like getting past in my mind, if this is a champagne bottle, don't break it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the next issue was there was an additional 36-minute delay getting the ship into the water because the crew couldn't get the keel blocks to release, uh, which would effectively allow... I'm not sure how, if it was like the Titanic where it kind of like glides into the water or if it kind of just like sets the water, you know, like sets it down in the water. But either way, when they finally did get it to go in the water... It actually launched sideways, and it created a huge tidal wave that uh, doused a shitload of the spectators. And there was (laughs) apparently 15,000 people here watching this. Yeah, that's, uh, I believe, with the Titanic, we were talking about that. They had to to lube up the dry dock with soap to get it to slide down. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things you would think that they would plan for. For that, you know, the wake <laughs> of water coming out. You would think that wouldn't be the first time that they launched a boat there. A lot so, of drunk probably Midwesterners. Probably not one that big, though. A lot of drunk Midwesterners. Yes, of German descent. And yeah, <laughs> it happens. Uh, and uh, the last tragic thing with the launch was a man who was sitting there watching ended up dying of a heart attack. I don't know what caused the heart attack. Bratwurst. He, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too many, too many kielbasa sandwiches. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that uh, it didn't. The ship didn't have a great start to its life, we'll say here. But either way, on September twenty second, nineteen fifty eight, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was officially in the water and ready to begin hauling things across the Great Lakes. Now, for the next seventeen years, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald would set several records many of which were records that the ship had previously held, but just continued to keep beating them, such as uh, when it hauled a record amount of goods coming in at 27,402 tons. At the time, that was groundbreaking. No ship had ever hauled that much. Because it continued to get such accolades, the ship itself would earn such nicknames as Fitz? Pride of the American side, I, I, that one, I, I guess is they're throwing shade at Canada. That would be my Probably. guess. Uh, the Mighty Fitz, Toledo Express, Big Fitz, and Titanic of the Great Lakes, which 
in hindsight, is a bit of an ominous nickname. So, any of those nicknames? Do you like any of those nicknames? Um, damn. I mean, I thought that the Toledo Express was uh, kind of a sex act, That's, actually, when <laughs> I first that, heard it. Why is that the first thing that came to my mind, too, when I heard that? Yeah, it's a little, I don't know, Cleveland Steamer, Toledo <laughs> Express, you know, something like that. Um, Pride of the American side, I had no idea what that meant until you said the the whole Canada thing. I was like, oh, yeah, there's another country, an irrelevant one at that. But there's another country just <laughs> north of there that shares the lakes. So, so yeah, um, uh, basically, yeah, Canada will become involved in this, actually. I forgot about that. But, uh, but yeah, they do. The Great Lakes do go, do go into our neighbors to the north there. So uh, I, I guess we were just flexing on them. Yeah. Now, most of the time, the ship would be hauling something known as taconite which is an iron-bearing sedimentary rock, it would be it would pick up taconite being mined from the Minnesota Iron Range mines near Duluth, which um, people not from here might not have heard this, but almost unanimously in the state, if someone says, hey, I'm from the Iron Range or something like that, you immediately know kind of where it is. Uh, it, it's still in operation today. It's a very... Very, like, uh, decorated thing, I guess. I don't think the work conditions are great, but it still still is there. Have you heard and of you it? Still, and you still have to live in Minnesota, which also isn't great. Um, <laughs> so when I was working at a Jimmy John's in St. Paul, uh, one, of the, one of the managers there, she said that she was from the range. And I thought that that was just up north, and it meant, like, you know, all of the the barren wasteland of just trees up north. But do you think she meant the iron range? Oh, without a doubt. Okay. Yeah. She just called it the range. It, so. it is weird because you have most of the population of Minnesota is in the twin cities Metro where I am or Rochester or I, what's the other big one? Um, Austin, Elberly, things like that. Otana. Yeah. But then they have like, People are from southern Minnesota, and then you have northern Minnesota, and then you have people from the Iron Range. Like, the Iron Range people are kind of like their own <laughs> culture of people. Like, it's weird. It's really you, weird. You can call them barbarians. It's fine. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. The Minnesotans with black lung. That's them right there. Yeah. There's the northerners, and then the way northerners, pretty much, and yeah. that's them. The, the tree people. <laughs> yeah. Now... After it would uh, load up this from the Iron Range, it would then get on the ship and the ship would transport them to ironworks located in different areas, mostly delivering it to either Detroit or Toledo. Obviously, Detroit, very big for metal fabrication as we, uh, I don't know if they really are anymore, but during this time, they certainly were. To fully uh, fill the ship, it was going to take, it would take roughly four and a half hours, but unloading it would take up to 14 hours. The average time to complete a round trip from Superior, Wisconsin to Detroit, Michigan was about five days. By uh, November of 1975, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald had logged 748 round trips and traveled over a million miles. Now, to get an idea of how many trips this thing has taken... Uh, it would be like the ship circling the globe 44 times. So they've gotten their work out of this fucking thing. 
Yeah, definitely has paid for itself probably yeah. by now. <laughs> yeah, I would assume so. I, I forgot to mention uh, when it was constructed in 1957, it costed Northwestern Mutual seven million dollars to construct, which at the time, obviously, that's a shitload of money. Yeah, it was obviously more money, you know, back then. Um, I'm trying to think. That's pretty. That's still quite a bit of money. I mean, you know, you remember Austin Powers, you know, the joke was the one million dollars thing. Yeah. So how that was a lot of money back in like the 60s. So in the 50s, seven million dollars, that's probably your you're kind of talking what like how much one of those super yachts now cost, like the billion dollar yachts. You're well, not for range. Bezos. Well, Bezos, I mean, that's, that's, you, he's a billion. You pick, Bezo, you pick up Bezos and shake him. And that fall seven million dollars falls out of his pocket. But yeah, I I think they said in modern day money there was about fifty million. So okay, um, that's about what what it what uh, the cost of it would have been. Which even still for a big business like Northwestern Mutual, fifty million to make God knows how much money probably is not that bad. That would I mean. Iron was, especially back post-World War II, iron was huge business. I mean, America, like the cities were jetting up during this time. All the skyscrapers going up and all of the roads being built. Uh, I mean, obviously rail was starting to go down a little bit, but iron was getting used everywhere. I mean, you know, all of these infrastructure, just it was everywhere. So right, right, big money exactly. in iron. Exactly. Now, the day that would become the SS Edmund Fitzgerald's maiden voyage was on November 9th, 1975. It all started at roughly 2.15 p.m. when the ship departed from Superior, Wisconsin. Now, I want everybody, I'm going to be going through a lot of, a lot of times, okay, a lot of time, uh, about, let's say, 15 hours worth of travel here, so... I'm going to okay. try to keep it as concise as I can, but just kind of keep keep an idea, uh, the when I point out the times of day, they become very important to figuring out what kind of uh, the travel pattern of this ship before the, uh, the, the sinking here, okay? All right. Now, the vessel was under the command of Captain Ernest M. McSorley. Uh, the ship itself was hauling at the time... 26,116 tons of taconite ore that was headed to Detroit, like it had done many, many times before. Now, have you seen how they measure the weight of these things? No, I have not. I was going to say Ernest McSorley definitely does not sound like a guy who has a drinking problem at all. <laughs> but um, do they do it by measuring its, like, how much uh, water? It yes. uh, disperses, basically. Is that how they measure that stuff? So, like, on the ship itself, they have a... It almost looks like a measuring cup, right? And mm -hmm. the depths that it sinks down will tell you how much weight is on the ship. Okay, yeah. I so. know... I think they... I learned that they do something similar with barges, I think, was how okay. that works. I mean, it so. makes sense. The same weight should sink the ship X amount of feet into the water. So, yeah. uh, you know, but anyway, now when the Edmund Fitzgerald took off, there was another freighter following it, following close behind it. That was named the Arthur M. Anderson, 
which was being piloted by Captain Jesse B. Bernie Cooper. Okay, does he sound like he has a drinking problem? Jesse Cooper? Uh, <laughs> maybe. Well, people call him Bernie, apparently. People call him Bernie. I mean, you know, I think everybody back then drank, especially if you were a ship captain, <laughs> but not as bad as a guy named McSorley. No. I'm guessing. <laughs> Ernest McSorley, yeah he, yeah, he doesn't wear condoms and he drinks a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Now, both of the ships at the time of their departure were given the same warning by the National Weather Service that a storm was going to be passing over the southern end of Lake Superior, but they were not anticipating it to be anything out of the uh, normal for November weather. Now, I don't know how many of our people, our fans out there, are familiar with uh, kind of like what they call the lake effect when it comes to bad weather, inclement weather. Anytime you are around the Great Lakes, especially if it's a snowstorm or something, uh, it, it like amplifies it really bad for some reason. So a normal winter storm can turn into a fucking shit show uh, for, you know, for because of the lake effect. Are you familiar with that kind of? I'm I'm a little I've heard of it before and I know that. Um, it can, you know, cause really bad storms. I, I had some friends when I was at ASU who were from Michigan. They used to talk about it all the time. Yeah. They were they were oopers. So <laughs> upper they peninsula talk about it. The upper peninsula. They were oop yeah, upper peninsula people are called oopers. Yeah. It's uh by the way, beautiful area, just uh, kind of strange people there. Yeah, filled with odd folk. Yeah. But <laughs> they are not a beautiful people. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> now at roughly 7 p.m. that same day, the National Weather Service issued an updated prediction that gale force winds would be affecting much of Lake Superior. Both the SS Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson decided it was best to change their routes to try to avoid the storm as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, both ships continued their journey without a problem. Keep in mind, they were both close enough to be able to see each other at this point. Now, I I don't know Freighterin uh, that well, but my understanding of it, at least at this point, is it was a good idea usually to have ships kind of, um, uh, I don't know, following each other to their destination. Like, they were far away enough where they couldn't hit each other, but they could still kind of, like, aid each other in their travel. Um, that's kind of what it sounded like is going on here again i don't know if that's normal practice but i guess it makes sense right well you when you got uh 26 000 tons of you know freight or iron or whatever and there's a problem you want another boat to be there i imagine to tow it just to shore just to right. at least tow it into the mud just so it doesn't sink i would i would want that pretty much well so you have like kind of a contingency plan if there is a problem, just get it to shore so that it doesn't sink. Right. And it, as we'll find out here, um, one of the best things about them following each other is they're able to kind of give each other, uh, what would you call it? Like using their radars together to kind of navigate each other, if that makes sense. Oh, so they were able to kind of help each other. Right. Like, okay, gotcha. 
We're not almost like GPS since they had they had two sets of nav- two sets of radars. They could kind of see everything better than if they just had one. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah. Now at about one a.m. the following morning, November tenth, the Edmund Fitzgerald was reporting winds at about sixty miles per hour, which caused the ship to slow its speed and adjust for the storm. Which apparently, okay, now this might lead into your theory about Captain McSorley, uh, was apparently unheard of because Captain McSorley would never slow his ship down. So this must have been quite bad weather. He must have been back on the wagon that night. Wasn't quite uh, as daredevil, devil may care as he usually was with the whiskey in his hand. So, yeah, it was, uh, it made me laugh. It's like, Every other witnesses are like Captain McSorley. He never slowed down, so something was very wrong uh, with him here. That's also one of those tall tale builders, though. Like, oh, True. the wind was so bad, he had to slow down, even though he never slowed down. That's how bad the wind was. It's one of those, like, you know, uh, things that kind of magnifies the story. Elevators. Right. You know? Well, the the other interesting thing is, and I guess I didn't necessarily include it in the notes, was he slowed down, and then I can't remember the nautical word for it, but essentially they turn the ship so they are going against the wind and cutting through the wind while they're traveling instead of the wind hitting them in the back. They have a name for it. I can't remember it, but I think that also fed into causing them to slow down a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure what the name of that is, how you're, I, is that just the direction that they were going or were they specifically aiming for the wind? They're, they like aim to go against the wind. I wonder if that was because of the waves that the wind was kicking up. A very, very possible. Because uh, when you, when you're, when you have, when, when you're in a big boat like that, you want to go directly like at the waves. You don't want to have it on your side at all. Or you might, with all that weight, you might tip over. So so maybe the, he, if, he was just doing the what you should have been doing. Yeah. I wonder if that's what it is. I mean, that's how it is in the movies. So the movies are never wrong, <laughs> really. Especially not that uh, George Clooney one, A Perfect Storm or whatever that shit was. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Same situation, exactly. Now, about an hour later at 2 a.m., The National Weather Service reported to both of the ships that they were now registering winds all over Lake Superior that were ranging anywhere from about 40 miles per hour to 60 miles per hour. But still at this point, both ships can still see each other and aren't reporting any sort of problems aboard the ship at all. One hour after that, at about 3 a.m., the SS Edmund Fitzgerald started to pull away from the Arthur M. Anderson, and this is the first point where the ships lost sight of each other, but they were still able to talk to each other via radio communication. This essentially said that the Edmund Fitzgerald was going like 16 miles per hour, and the other ship couldn't get that fast, so it they slowly spread apart. Yeah, slowly sped apart. So McSorley so. was back off the wagon. Yeah, and he uh he had the, he had the old fucking whiskey back in his hand <laughs> and the Canadian whiskey pounding he, he it back. Had, he had that liquid courage uh, coming yep. back. 
maybe fuck the wind, kick her back up. Maybe he had one of his uh his maidens waiting for him in Detroit, and he really <laughs> needed to get there. He's got a salt wife <laughs> waiting for there him. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> one of his salt wives. So it's funny how when you think about it, like the National Weather Service is calling these ships and telling them, like, oh, by the way, there's 40 to 60 mile an hour winds all over the lakes. And they're probably like, yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're experiencing it right now. We're in it. You know? I, I wonder the, if, if this still happens. Like if there's obviously they use the Great Lakes to transport shit. I wonder yeah. if like they, the whoever the Weather Service, whatever is constantly contacting them, telling them like, OK, on this section of the the lake, there's uh, high wind or something like. They probably have it narrowed down so much that they can like pinpoint the bad spots on the water. Oh, I'm sure it's all internet based now, and I'm sure that they can probably get yeah, just like you said, they could probably get a pretty good view of like what's directly coming up on them, um, right? Just for like their position. So I'm guessing that yeah, it's all internet based now. Um, yeah. They probably do have backup, you know, F backup radios uh, just in case the uh, their satellite stuff goes out. But I imagine it's much more, you know, much more modern. Technology A little more advanced now. than 1975. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, both the ships continued to travel without any problem up until 245 that following afternoon. So that's quite a big gap. That's almost 12 hours. Yep. Of no problems at all. Now, it seems like the storm that was kind of hitting them in the middle of the night kind of tapered off. But at about 2.45 p.m. that afternoon, the storm seemed to kind of come back alive. And it also, in addition to the wind, began to snow, which caused the ships to have both decreased visibility. Around this time, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was estimated to have been about 16 miles ahead of the Arthur M. Anderson. So that's a pretty good size gap between the two ships. Yeah, starting to build some distance there. At about 3.30 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed the Arthur M. Anderson to tell him that his vessel was starting to take on water. It had lost two of his vent covers and a fence railing. Now, keep in mind, initial thought, this sounds really bad at first, but the SS Edmund Fitzgerald had six bilge pumps that were running continuously to discharge any water that was coming on, uh, that was the ship was taking on, because it is, wouldn't have been that unusual for a ship carrying this much shit to have splashes of water come up on it, right? So they have... Yeah precautions to kind of suck that water out. Captain McSorley informed the Arthur M. Anderson that he was going to go ahead and slow down so they could catch up to each other again and kind of uh, get eyes on each other. So that's smart. Captain McSorley, I'm assuming, uh, what, 14 hours or 12 hours later, he's sobering up a little bit. He's yeah. got uh, a little bit of a hangover going on, and he's like, all right, we got to slow down a bit. Yeah, it does sound like, you know, he's. you said that initially he slowed down because of all the winds and the storms kicked up. And then you said that he like he sped back up and it does sound like they must have hit something like a big wave if they lost two vent covers and the side railing. So it sounds like they hit a hell of a fucking a wave come up on them. 
Right. So we're 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 gonna get to uh, the waves that were hitting him because they certainly had some nasty goddamn waves coming. Yeah. But although he told him that, it didn't. From what I can gather, it sounds bad, but he wasn't. He didn't sound distressed yet. It's just like, oh, the ship took damage, but it, it'll be okay for now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But at about 4.10 p.m., roughly about an hour, 10 minutes after that, the Arthur M. Anderson was within 10 miles now of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, which Captain McSorley reported now that his radar wasn't working and he was going to be waiting for the Arthur M. Anderson to catch up to give him assistance with radar guidance, okay? So, obviously, you need the radar to see where the fuck you're going, especially during a storm. Sounds like they're starting to have some pretty big malfunctions here. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great, but again, nothing indicated that Captain McSorley was, like, freaked out. He was just like, okay, I'm going to wait up for the Arthur M. Anderson. Unfortunately, the two ships would never get within eyesight of each other again. At roughly 6 p.m., about an hour and 50 minutes after that, it seems the storm was starting to come at them really hard. Mm. The Arthur M. Anderson was reporting being hit by winds ranging anywhere from roughly 81 miles per hour to 86 miles per hour and was being hit by rogue waves as high as 35 feet in the air. That is uh, quite scary. If I was on that ship and I saw a 35-foot wave, I'd be kind of terrified. How about you? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you are in the biggest boat on the lake. And these, yeah, it has to be really freaking you out. There was a, so we were on a boat in Mille Lacs when mm. the storm kicked up. Uh, Mille Lacs is like the biggest lake in Minnesota. It's it's big enough to where if you get in the middle, you feel like you're on the ocean because you can't see the edges. And we got caught in a storm. We were on a fishing trip on a charter boat. We got caught in a storm. And there was maybe eight to 10 foot waves uh, that were kicking this boat around. And just that big was terrifying yeah. to be in that boat. Like we were all sitting down on the on the deck of the boat in the middle of it trying just to, you know, keep from getting shot off of the thing. So Yeah, this shit is scary as fuck. So 35-foot waves, even though you're in a huge boat, that's got to be fucking terrifying. I bet everyone was changing their fucking huggies that day. <laughs> that was pretty bad. <laughs> All right. Now, even though the Arthur M. Anderson was reporting all this inclement weather and terrifying waves, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald didn't radio that they were having any sort of problems, even though the war- the storm seemed to be getting worse. At around 7.10 p.m., about hour and 10 minutes af- after uh, the, kind of the bad part hit him, the Arthur M. Anderson radioed Captain McSorley to ask, how-, how are you doing up there? Captain McSorley radioed back, we are holding our own, okay? This is the last ever transmission... <laughs> That is received from the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Not only that, but within 10 minutes of him saying those words, the Arthur M. Anderson lost the ability to reach the Edmund Fitzgerald via radio, and they could no longer detect the vessel on its radar. Even weirder, 
there wasn't even the slightest attempt by the Edmund Fitzgerald to alert a distress signal or anything like that. Essentially, within the 10-minute span of Captain McSorley saying we are holding our own, it fucking vanished off the face of the earth, essentially. So, um, what what do you feel about it at that point? That seems kind of weird for a ship to kind of, that big of a ship to kind of vanish that quickly. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's pretty fucking crazy. There uh, maybe were some U-boats in the area, is my initial <laughs> thought. They snuck or, in them. They came down from Canada. There are the pirates of Pittsburgh. There possibly. you go. So shit. Maybe it was them. Could have been them. Um, yeah, that's I mean, within ten minutes. It's crazy to have him say, We're holding our own. I mean, he's an old an old sea dog, you know. Maybe he was um just had, you know, thought that they could nothing that we can't handle, even though it was getting really bad. So it must have been something big and sudden that hit them if they weren't even able to radio for help. Even if their ship was going down, they weren't able to radio for help. So Yes, and that's kind of where, once we get to the conspiracy part of this, that's kind of um, at the core of this. Like, trying to figure out how the fuck this ship basically disappeared and sank within 10 minutes. Uh, but Honest, we'll, Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, honestly, being, like, what, mid-November during a blizzard out on the lakes... I would rather that that rogue wave killed me before it put me in the water. Yeah. Because you're not going to last for very long um, out in that open water. That's pretty fucking bad out in a storm like that. That's <sighs> rough. The, well, the average temperature apparently on Lake Superior is 36 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so, yeah, during a storm, that's going to be quite bad. Yeah. That's, that's pretty fucking rough. <laughs> now... After the SS Edmund Fitzgerald kind of just vanished, it it didn't immediately cause concern because, you know, this sort of thing can happen. But by 9 p.m., the Coast Guard was asking all the vessels in the area, including the Arthur uh, Anderson and another freighter, to kind of search around and try to find any sign of any survivors, um, things like that. For the next three days... All sorts of different equipment was launched uh, to try to locate a single shred of evidence that there was crew members, where the boat went, like anything like that. They used aircrafts, helicopters, and search and rescue vehicles. They did find shreds of debris from the ship, which included lifeboats and rafts. But again, they couldn't find a shred of evidence of a person's body. Okay, not even clothing. Mm. Now, this is particularly weird because the SS Edmund Fitzgerald at the time had 29 crew members on board, which included the captain, the first, second, and third mate, five engineers, three oilers, a cook, a wiper, two maintenance men, three watchmen, three deckhands, three wheelsmen, two porters, a cadet, and a steward. I don't know what the hell a wiper is, but it doesn't sound like a job that I necessarily want. And why do these hopefully, all... Hopefully he's not assigned directly to the captain okay. during the bathroom time. That's <laughs> They all kind of have like pooping uh, titles, <laughs> in, like honestly. But, uh, but my point was with all these people, um, I would assume some of them have 
at least some sort of survival uh, training if something like this happens, wouldn't you assume? Oh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't be on a boat unless you knew exactly what the evacuation precautions were. I mean, this was back in the 70s, but still. They wouldn't, I don't think they would let you on the boat, especially, I mean, some of the engineers and the maintenance men, if they were down in the, in the, you know, bowels of the ship working on trying to get the water out, trying to keep the engines on, I could see how if the ship went down, they would die instantly. But you had a lot of deckhands, a lot of wheelsmen, porter, I'm sure, I'm sure it was all hands on deck for this storm. So I doubt anyone was taking a a nap. Okay. Could, could have Captain McSorley through a bit too hard of a bash like a big party and they were all drunk possibly <laughs> I, I doubt during the storm that they'd be drinking but with a name like mcsorley it's a party every night i imagine <laughs> so now finally on november 14th 1975 a u.s navy lockheed p3 orion aircraft detected magnetic anomalies in the water near a place oddly called Dead Man's Cove (laughs) in, or it was near Ontario, Canada. Okay, so uh, you don't want to be, have your ship crashed in a place named uh, Dead Man's Cove. A little ominous there. When they finally dove into the waters, they located the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. It had been torn into two pieces. The bow section was sticking upright in the mud, and the stem section was laying roughly about 175 feet from the bow section. The two pieces were down in the water roughly 530 feet. They found the ship, and still they were searching, and they they didn't locate a single body, okay? Even though they found the wreckage, Mm. they did not find a single body, um... It's very weird to me. What is your initial feelings here? I'm guessing it was a real quick abandoned ship. Um, You know, everyone probably got off as quick as they could. Didn't have time to jump into a lifeboat. They probably jumped right off the side of the boat. Uh, Probably froze pretty quickly. You know, got taken away. Because I imagine the two large pieces of the boat, they went straight down. And then all of the little white, like the life rafts and stuff like that, probably floated away once it all sunk. But their bodies probably, you know, probably got swished around in that cove, probably sent away. Right, so. right. It's uh, but yeah, we'll we'll kind of get into that. But the crew members is kind of like the really, to me, a really the root, probably the weirdest part of this whole thing. Um, okay. But let's kind of get into. What exactly happened? What have we figured out? Uh, there, There's some interesting theories here. This is a conspiracy episode that doesn't necessarily get extremely weird. This is more of a what I consider a thinker episode. Um, okay. But the one thing I can say is weird is since this thing's crashed, they have found exactly one body. And that wasn't found until 1994, and even then, they cannot confirm the body <laughs> belonged to somebody aboard this ship. So keep that in mind as well. So we'll start off as the weirdest one. Uh, wouldn't be a sub-D episode if we didn't at least acknowledge <laughs> that people speculate 
They were, in fact, abducted, all abducted by aliens, and then the aliens blew up the ship, cut it in half, and it sank there. What do you, uh, what do you think about that one, Phil? Well, I mean, that's a pretty good catch-all is, uh, you know, aliens done it, one of those deals, and then uh, covered up their tracks by blowing up the, the boat. Obviously, you're going <laughs> to want to take Captain McSorley up there for the DNA testing. Yeah. You know, maybe create a whole fucking a whole pride of hybrids out of his uh, out of his seed there. But yeah, I mean, it's the obvious, you know, one that you always hear kind of thrown out there for things. It's a it's an easy uh, it's an easy theory to throw out there that you can't necessarily disprove that didn't happen, but it's exceedingly unlikely that happened. Uh, Another one that I didn't really include in my notes, but is something that is kind of an interesting thing that's talked about is the, they call it the Minnesota Triangle, which is essentially because, uh, as I'll get into later here, uh, there's been a lot of death on Lake Superior. Like, Lake Mm. Superior has killed a lot of people kind of this way, sinking ships and stuff like that. So, um, kind of, it has a reputation and then sometimes they call it the uh minnesota triangle which obviously is kind of leaning on the bermuda triangle thing but i didn't want to get into all that i kind of wanted to just uh start with the the most logical explanations and i'll be curious what uh about how you feel about them so you're saying that lake superior has killed as many or almost as many people as wisconsin drunk driving (laughs) Okay, I didn't say that many, Phil. Okay, yeah, I was going to say. I would say about a tenth of the amount of people that um, Dick Cheney is responsible for killing. Okay, that's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's a lot of people. Quite a bit. (laughs) Now, when we start to examine the possible reasonings here, we need to try to figure out how, number one, what is it? that cut the ship in half so quickly, okay? That's kind of the main equation. And the second one is, after it broke into, how did it sink so fast? These are the two main things that we got to kind of try to figure out what happened to this ship here. The first possible explanation is it was destroyed via rogue waves. We had, there was very large rogue waves being reported by the Arthur M. Anderson, Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind that they speculate not a singular rogue wave would have been strong enough to cause the ship to tear in two. They speculate that the ship would have had to almost, almost have been hit by three rogue waves kind of simultaneously. What they're speculating here is that we remember Captain McSorley claimed they were taking water early on, so... What they think happened was the ship might have had some water and then Mm -hmm. it was kind of hit by the three waves, right? Filled up the, overwhelmed the pumps. They couldn't get rid of it fast enough. And because there was so much weight from the ore, uh, basically the ship just split in two. And because it was filled with water, just went right down. What do you, uh, what do you think about that one? It broke its back. Essentially. I mean, it had a, it would have had a shit ton of weight in it just from all that iron ore too. Yeah. So, yeah. so it would have, yeah, full of, uh, I mean, I could see, I could see that 
Um, just also it's an old boat too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, do you have any idea the Arthur M. Anderson? Is that a was that a newer boat or an older boat? I don't know, but I'm gonna guess a uh, a newer boat because it kind of sounded like the the Edmund Fitzgerald was kind of like the old dog on the lake that they I mean they really leaned into not that this boat was an antique but it'd seen better days. Well used. Yeah. Yeah. I get yeah. you. Okay. I get you. Yeah. So there's that, which that might actually lead us into kind of another explanation that they throw around because the ship was so old and had been used so much. It actually, the whole of it had a pre-existing stress fracture that they didn't really know was there. And because the ship's hull was already weak, when it, it they overloaded the ship and the water that was coming aboard the ship from the waves and all that just ca- just caused so much pressure that essentially it caused the freighter to split in two really quickly without uh. them really seeing, you know, being able to <laughs> notice that that was going to be a problem. Much like uh, the Battlestar Galactica in the uh, the hit sci-fi show Galactica, if anyone saw that like 10 years ago, but... That was great. Wait, the, did they um, have a stress fracture on the ship? Yeah, so it was an old ship that they were decommissioning, but it ended up getting put into use when the Cylons attacked. And they didn't realize that there were stress fractures. So they did a radioactive uh, test to see if there's any stress fractures in the hull or in the keel. And basically the whole thing lit up with stress fractures. Because <laughs> so, it was an old, it was an old ship. So. Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I bet all of our cars probably have stress fractures <laughs> around them. It just yeah. happens when uh, metal gets old, really. So yeah, so, especially those Minnesota winters. They tend well, to, I was, they tend I, to rust things. You know what I was just gonna say. This reminds me of talking of stress fractures. The bridges here. Uh, you probably remember this. Yes. They weren't paying attention to them. <laughs> De, uh, deteriorating and obviously they had the 35W bridge collapse which killed a bunch of people. A and bit that, of a whoopsie. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and then they're like okay now we gotta start paying attention to the bridges because winter destroys them. So. Yes. You like, would think that they would know that being well, you know, in Minnesota and all. But You know uh, just like any human there's always that ah we'll worry about it later. You know, kicking the can down the road. Sometimes yeah. when uh, public safety, you can't say, I will worry about it later. Definitely. Well, yeah, infrastructure is one of those things that really took a big hit when all of the politicians started, you know, soaking up a lot of money into their pockets. So. Yeah, ah, that's too bad. Now, I'm going to give you there is a lot more explanations, but a lot of them are kind of regurgitating the same theory. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kind of give. The last possible explanation, this might be my favorite one, but it is also what I would consider to be the scariest one as well. Now, it's speculated that the cargo hatches aboard the ship actually didn't do that great of job of keeping the water out of the cargo hold. And due to the fact that the ship had been you know, going against the storm for over 24 hours at this point, the water was slowly seeping into the ship after it kept getting hit by 
by uh, water repeatedly for a day straight. And the water slowly filled the freighter without anybody noticing. And because of all that weight from the oars sitting there, uh, they might have just... The ship just kind of fucking immediately cracked in half. And then because there's already water in it, it just went down in like an instant. And maybe they had just enough time to attempt to get in the life rafts. And maybe that's why they were just kind of found wandering around, but there's no people around them. So that was kind of like the... I I feel like you're just kind of slowly rolling to your doom in that one without having any idea that the water is slowly building up. That would be like in the movie where they do a cutaway scene to show the rivets starting to pop with the water coming in and no one's down there. You know, no one's doing a little walk around to look for, you know, holes because everyone's trying to just keep the ship moving forward. Yeah. So in that part of the movie, you would see more and more rivets popping and water just pouring in around that little, uh, the breach, you know, around the, uh, the cargo hold covers. Yeah. Yeah, Like, uh, ship was 17 years old so and i can't re- imagine they kept up with maintenance on the ship <laughs> that oh, much at this time period guaranteed those nice little those nice leather seats had some cracks in oh, the yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah in the upholstery so definitely the ac didn't quite wasn't quite as crisp as it used to be you know exactly yeah. Now, kind of like me with kind of like me with my car, just trying to get every <laughs> last mile out of it I can before I have to replace it. Ride it so. till it's dead, baby. Yeah, I away. All right, uh, Phil, do you like any of these possible explanations, or do you possibly have your own theory on what could have happened to the ship breaking in half and sinking? At least I kind of like the a little bit of everything. How it's just an old boat; it was in a storm for too long. Um, you know. They just kind of, it was just filling up with water over 24 hours until it finally just broke in half. And they barely had enough time to get off the boat, let alone into a life raft. So I kind of like that explanation. I was also kind of wondering about um, maybe if, I don't know what kind of fuel this used. I wonder if there was any like, like, you know, uh, maybe there was a ruptured line or something like that. Something maybe blew up the ship, but they probably would have found some some burning or, you know, uh big fire or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I did read, I think it started off as a coal burning one and then it had switched its fuel source like three or four times um, okay. before the crash. So I don't know what the most modern source of power was for them, but it, they did switch it around. So every, everything uses diesel now. Except for obviously the big naval boats that use the uh, nuclear reactor. Mm. So most most of our cargo around the world is pushed around by diesel right now. I actually that uh, does ring a bell. I almost I bet they were running on diesel uh, at the end of its life there. Yeah, the big switch would have been from God. What was the Titanic? That was coal. So yeah. Coal in like the teens, I'm guessing that diesel probably became, probably took over around the time that it was built. So, yeah, if it switched, I bet it switched from coal to diesel. Probably, you're probably right. Now, uh, the one last kind of thing here is, and this was honestly the 
the missing crew that was never found was kind of my the part of this whole story that kind of drew me to it because it reminded me a lot of the uh, MV Hoita that we covered a long time ago where the crew just like vanished. It was never found again. Um, but the popular belief is uh, that the reason they've never really located a body is because if they had all died, uh, the water was cold enough that how can I explain this why you float is because of like a bacteria buildup in your body or something and when the water's so cold it prevents that bacteria from like expanding I guess so you sink to the bottom and because yeah. the water's so cold it pushed all the bodies down and kind of kept them on the bottom of the lake so that's what the reason they give why they've never found a body um, I guess it's not definitive, but it it kind of makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, there was a there was a movie that I just watched where it was kind of like one of those mafia movies. It was where the wives took over when the husbands went to jail, and they were there was a guy showing uh, one of the ladies how to properly dispose of a body in the in the river in New York City, and he basically stabbed both of the lungs. So that there wasn't any air in the chest cavity so that it would sink and it would basically just go on the bottom of the river out to sea. Mm. So I can see how if if the bodies didn't have any like that bacteria like gas buildup, how they wouldn't float. Right. Um, And if they did, they would probably be just be go right down to the bottom and then the undercurrent would take them around. So who knows where those bodies would end up when the undercurrent got them. So. Well, that kind of leads me into, uh, and I have my own personal story about the Great Lakes and killing people. So Lake Superior itself, as I said, has been known to be a lake that kills people. Uh, They have had over, I guess, since they started paying attention and transporting things on the lake, 350 shipwrecks and over 10,000 people have been killed here. Uh, it, It has an old legend and I believe this was created by the natives that say Lake Superior never gives up her dead. Kind of a metal title for the lake. I can't deny that, but that's a lot also, of people. Also a lot like Dick Cheney. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't give up his dead either. Uh, but yeah, that's a lot of people from shipwrecks. Yeah, that is. Uh, that's a shit ton. Um, I mean, it's crazy to think that... All the way back to the Native Americans, you know, traveling on this also claim that once there is an accident on the lake that like they also never found the bodies of their own people. So like this legend goes back that far, but so it's pretty crazy. Let me tell my story real quick. Uh, This is a long time ago. Unfortunately, I don't talk to the guy anymore. Um, It was a guy I used to play video games with. He lived in Canada, like just north of Detroit, right? And he, he, his uncles, I think it was his uncles, um, would go out fishing. I think that was like Huron, but they would go out fishing. And like, I still can remember this one day, one day he was talking, they were out fishing and then they just literally disappeared. Well, the, the great lakes essentially, uh, shipwrecked them, killed them and they've never found a body. So I don't know. 
if it's just something about these Great Lakes or whatever, but you got to be real careful because you die or shipwreck there from a storm or whatever, you're probably never going to be found. Yeah, especially if a storm just kind of hits you all of a sudden. Yeah. And you're you're in a tiny little boat and you're just being kicked around by big boy waves. It's not like you're just on one of the lakes in the Midwest, like one of the inland lakes. You're, uh, yeah. I mean, you were talking about 35-foot swells. So that's yeah. enough to, if you're in a normal-sized boat, that's enough to tip you over and take you under all in one swoop. So cold water, big waves. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not like you're going to get eaten alive by any animal because they, the Great Lakes just don't have those type of uh, creatures in them, but you will probably drown and cr- I don't know how, if you cramp up or you get hypothermia or whatever, but it's, it's very tragic. All these people lost their lives. Apparently Canada to, to mem or memorialize memorialize the deaths of these men. Um, nobody's allowed to dive within the area where the wreckage is. So oh. yeah. And there's a museum. I think it's in Minnesota that has like a few of the bells from the ship and a few little uh, pieces of the ship that you can look at. It's kind of neat. Of the, okay, of this boat, of the of Edmund the, Fitzgerald. Of the Edmund Fitzgerald, yes. So I was going to say, too, you were talking about people going fishing out on the lakes up there. You got to also think, too, if you're out all day fishing, you know, and a storm catches up with you, you've got to have a belly full of fucking, you know, belly full of Molsons. Yeah. You know, Cana- Canadians out there on a boat, so. <laughs> it Probably is not funny. The most conducive to saving <laughs> your own life. I honestly would be real curious how other people around the world or United States even feel about this. But in the Midwest, I can tell you, if someone says the any of these things, these are kind of like code words. We're going hunting, we're going fishing, or the worst offenders, we're going ice fishing. These are all means, yes, they're doing those things, but they're also drinking, okay? Yeah. The drinking is kind of like they wouldn't do those things if there wasn't drinking there. So... If you hear anybody from the Midwest saying, we're going ice fishing, that means they're going to go sit in a hut, fish in the ice, and get shit-faced. Or, or we're going booze cruising. Yeah. Basically just you killing a 24-pack between you know a couple of people on the back roads, driving around drunk all day. <laughs> That's an even worse <laughs> idea. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it that, that shit always makes me laugh. Uh, yeah, back home shit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, all right, Phil, what do you, so you kind of laid out your uh, your theory here. Do you do you buy into the bodies probably just sank down because of the, the coldness of the water? Yeah, I mean, I would think, I think that it happened all of a sudden and they didn't have a chance to get into the lifeboats. Obviously, they found the lifeboats later on, had kind of floated away. So yeah, I think they just kind of, it happened so fast, they just jumped overboard and ended up, you know, freezing to death in the water and their bodies just kind of sank like rocks. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, for how the boat sank, it's an old boat, big waves, you know, bad situation. Just pretty as simple as you can get it. The whole Occam's razor thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. You, The funny part is when I kind of was first reading this, I was like, oh, this is kind of, has like a paranormal aspect to it. And then I'm reading, I'm like, 
Actually, this is just a straight-up tragedy. Uh, but if yeah. we have any freighter experts out there, I would love for you to email us uh, like Casey did in the beginning and tell us whatever you know about freighters. Where can they contact us, Phil? Well, I was also going to say, too, it's it's up in the north in the lakes, so it could be uh, one of those big, like the Loch Ness Monster-type creatures that they've got up there in Canada. Hell yeah. So that they can get a hold of us at our email subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Obviously, we talked about Casey at the beginning of the episode, got a hold of us. We've also gotten a hold of by a lot of other fans in the past week. Actually, really great to hear from you guys. So keep that up. Uh, Even better way to get a hold of us uh, is on Instagram. I've been getting a lot of great messages on there too. So thank you for that. Uh, You know, get a hold of us anytime. Send us your, you know, memes. Give us the likes, the reviews. We love it all. So you can also get a hold of us both on our own Instagrams. Mine is sdpodphil. Cody, you got one? Yeah, mine is Cody Zabub. I haven't been using it nearly as much as I used to. Uh, You can follow me on TikTok if you want to send me some funny videos. I always like those. Uh, The last thing we need you guys to do is to log on to iTunes, leave a show five-star review. It doesn't really matter what you say as long as it's a five-star with some words written there. If you're a Spotify user, it's really easy. You just got to hit that follow button, and it is apparently like an iTunes review. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.